morning again to you all. I, I suspect all of you have heard of the word oxymoron, haven't you? An oxymoron, of course, is it combines two words or two phrases that seem to be the opposite of each other, and yet we use them all the time. Let me give you some examples. An accurate estimate. Those don't belong. Or alone together. Or bittersweet. Or deafening silence. Or a devout atheist. Or jumbo shrimp. <laughs> or the living dead. Or an open secret. Or an organized mess. They don't belong together. Or passive aggressive. Or this one. Plastic silverware. <laughs> or pretty ugly. Or silent scream. Or this one. An unbiased opinion. Or a working vacation. They don't go together, but we use them all the time. And of course, we use them in sentences as well. This is Andy Warhol. I am a deeply superficial person. Or Anthony Hayden. Of course I can keep secrets. It's the people I tell them to who can't keep them. Or Dolly Parton. You'd be surprised how much it costs to look this cheap. Or Edith Konecki. I have a terrible memory. I never forget a thing. Or Irene Peter. Always be sincere, even when you don't mean it. Or I, this one is Josh Billings. Live within your income even if you have to borrow to do so. Or Oscar Wilde, I can resist everything but temptation. Mark Twain, it usually takes more than three weeks to prepare a good impromptu speech. W.C. Fields, the best cure for insomnia is to get a lot of sleep. And the one, the best of all, Winston Churchill, I always avoid prophesying beforehand because it is much better to prophesy after the event has already taken place. <laughs> and that's what we're going to talk about today. Because I titled the sermon today, Future History, which is an oxymoron. History, of course, is what's taken place in the past, and future is what takes place in the future. But today, we're going to be given an account, a strange, strange account of the future that's given as a history lesson. And the text is, is uh, Daniel chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, please go with me there, and let me give you some background where we left off last time. King Nebuchadnezzar had a distressing dream, but he forgot his dream. Now, in that culture in which he lived, uh, dreams were extremely significant, and being a king, he believed that his dream had significance for his kingdom. For if, in fact, he couldn't remember his dream, his people could die. And if he could remember his dream, his people may be able to prosper. So what did he do? Since he was so deeply troubled, he called his wise people, the people who had been trained in connecting with the gods and people who had been trained in interpreting dreams, and he called them all and he said, here's the deal. I had a dream but I can't remember my dream. And if you can tell me my dream and interpret it, I'm going to reward you in ways you can't believe. But if you can't, I'm going to kill you. That was the deal. Now, of course, the wise men tried to weasel out of that because this is 
They said, this is impossible, king. This is inhuman. No human has ever done this. No king has ever asked anyone to do this kind of thing. In fact, only the gods could reveal such things to human beings. And Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, uh, I thought that was supposed to be what you were all about. You are the ones who tell me that you're in connection with the gods. And now when I ask you to tell me what the gods are thinking, you can't tell me anything? <laughs> you're dead. And so he puts out the order to kill all the wise men because he's really ticked. Well, Daniel happens to be a wise man in training. And since the order went out, he was included in it. And so Arioch, one of the king's advisors, one of the, the person given the responsibility to carry out this execution order goes to Daniel and says, um, sorry, buddy, but you're going to be killed. So why? So, well, the king had a dream, and it was a troubling dream, and it was a significant dream, but he can't remember his dream. And so if the wise men can't tell him what his dream was and interpret it, he's going to kill the whole bunch of you. Daniel said, um, I can tell the king what his dream is. Well, of course, Ariok went to the king and then brought Daniel to the king. And uh, Daniel said, king, give me some time and I'll tell you your dream. So what did Daniel do? He immediately went home and he explained the situation to his dear friends, four godly young men. Remember, he's only like 15 or 16 years old. He's a very young person. They prayed fervently to God, pleading to God for his mercy. And then that night, God revealed to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And of course, the next day, Daniel went to see the king. And the first thing he did, he said, King, please stay the order to execute the wise men. The first thing he thinks about is the life of other people. And then he says, King, let me set everything straight. There is no human being, including myself, who can tell what somebody else dreamed. That's not possible. But I want you to know, Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God. There is not a, one of the gods, but there is a true God, the God we worship as Jewish people. That true God is able to reveal dreams, and he did reveal the dream to me. Now, let me tell you again, I am not here because I'm smarter than other people, but I am here because there is a good God who wanted you to know, O oh king, what the future holds. And then Daniel is going to tell the king his dream. And that's where we left off last week. And now, today, we're going to turn to the king's dream. And that's where, um, if you will look in your Bibles, we're going to chap chapter 2, verse 31. But now, let me give you a bit of quick background. One of the... Um, the ancient writers of that region, a man by the name of Hesoid, in the 700s BC. Now remember, Daniel's in the 500s BC. In the 700s BC, um, he first, in, in a book called Works and Days, he submitted the idea that eras of human history would be represented by different metals. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And each of these successive kingdoms would be less happy than the preceding one. That was a current idea that these people in Babylon knew about, and the king would have known that. And so now 
Here's the king's dream. Verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, let's just think briefly about that, just from a, just what you saw there. Let's say that you've never seen anything in your life about the interpretation, but there it is. Okay, you've got four metals. Um, I don't know a lot about metallurgy, but I was honored in the church where I pastored in Colorado to have a person who had a foundry, who owned a foundry there, and a person in our church who had a PhD in metallurgy. So I learned some things about metals that I had no idea about before. One, um, I learned a bit about, about gold. Gold, of course, is, is a very heavy metal, metal and a very valuable metal. It doesn't corrode. It doesn't tarnish. It is soft and ductile. And of course, throughout history, a head symbolizes intelligence and glory. And in this statue, the head symbolizing intelligence is gold, made of a very heavy, very valuable, but um, not, not, not very hard of metal. And then the, this portion, the chest, the arms. The chest and the arms, now remember we're going in number from one head to two arms. The arms symbolizes, symbolize the heart, because that's what's here, the, the heart. And the arms, large spread. So the arms are like this, like you've seen the, 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 the statue in, in Rio de Janeiro of, of Jesus with his arms spread out like this. Now, silver is lighter in weight than gold, and it is not as valuable as gold. But it is harder than gold. It's stronger than gold. Well, then you come to the, the next part, the, the, the portion in, in the middle part, your, your, what, what uh, exercise people would call your core and, and, and your thighs. Now, the, the, the core, that's your core strength. And, and of course, your thighs, that's what enables you to move and to move particularly fast. And bronze is much less valuable than gold or silver, but it's also much stronger, much tougher. And then the, the bottom portion, the legs, are composed of iron. Now, iron, actually, in weight, is the least heavy of these metals, but it's by far the strongest. However, the iron is mixed with clay, and when you mix clay with iron, you get something that's extremely brittle. But then it talks about this rock that... No human being made this rock. The rock is like an asteroid comes into like the earth and it goes and hits that statue in the feet 
Not in the head. Now, if you want to kill something, you aim for the heart or the head, but it doesn't hit the heart or the head. It hits the feet, and it crashes that whole thing to to the ground. But then that rock starts to get bigger and bigger. As the statue is destroyed, the rock gets bigger and bigger, and it takes over the whole world. Well, that's that's what he says. Now, let's, let's summarize. These are just observations. Any human being on the face of the earth with half a brain can figure this out. The metals decrease in value from top to bottom. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then clay, not even a metal. But the metals also decrease in weight from the top, the heaviest, to the bottom. But the metals of the statue also increase in hardness and strength. The weakest is the gold, then silver, then bronze, and the strongest, of course, is the iron. Think of the body parts. One head, two arms, and then the belly and the thighs, I think that number's three, and then the feet, they're many, is what it says. Though iron is very strong when it's mixed with clay, it is extremely weak. Now again, if you had only seen the stream, none of the interpretation, which is coming, what deductions could you make if you were Nebuchadnezzar? The first thing is you'd say, are you kidding? That's exactly what my dream was. Now, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, what could you deduce? One, the source of my dream is not the gods, it's God. And in my dream, like Hesiod told us 200 years ago, God is giving me a picture of the future. And this statue is the equivalent of a vertical timeline. We usually do our timelines horizontally. This is a vertical timeline from the head to the feet. And then um, think of the time frame. What we're going to soon see in this is now these, the head and the chest and the torso with the thighs and the feet are four eras or four kingdoms of the world. Interestingly, the first one is going to last about 100 years. The second one is going to last about 200 years. The third one is going to last 300 years. And the fourth one's going to last over 400 years, which I don't think he could have figured that one out yet, but that's what happened. And at some point, something from the outside is going to enter into human history and it's going to change everything. That you could deduce just by looking at that, at that, uh, that his simple um, dream. Now, again, if I was Nebuchadnezzar, I'd think, well, phew. God must want to be involved in my life. And I I think God is good to have told me about the future, especially when he calls me gold. That's kind of nice. I like to be called gold. Because God is going to do something very valuable with me and through me. And God is trying to warn me about something that's going to happen in the future. And God himself is building something that's going to take over the whole world and is going to last forever. That's what you could pick up. An interesting uh, illustration in our nation in 1787 in Philadelphia, there was a constitutional convention that was taking place at Independence Hall. And as the, the founding fathers of our nation gathered together, they were trying to structure the United States. 
And after the meeting was over, a crowd had gathered on the steps of Independence Hall and were eager to hear the news. And one woman um, approached Benjamin Franklin and, and she asked, Well, doctor, what do we have? A republic or a monarchy? And Franklin replied, A republic, if you can keep it. A republic, if you can keep it. And history tells us we can't and never have and never will. Because what's coming next now is Daniel is going to interpret this dream of the statue. And so that's where we turn next. Because what Daniel is going to tell the king is that these parts of the, of the statue, the head, the chest and arms, the torso and thighs, the feet, and ultimately the last portion with the rock, are going to depict several kingdoms or governmental structures, if you will. And Daniel's going to explain them in time. Here's verse 36, in which Daniel now is going to tell the king about the first kingdom, which happens to be the one in which they are living at that time. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. <laughs> you must have been happy about that one. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, wherever they live. He has made you ruler over all of them. You are the head of gold. Did you notice what Daniel said? We are going to interpret your dream. Who's the we? <laughs> well, I'm going to be the mouthpiece but God is the source of this interpretation. And so Daniel spoke, first of all, frankly to the king. He said, no, it's not Marduk. It's not Bel. It is not your gods that have done this. It is the God, the one true God of heaven. It is the God of heaven who's given you your position, your might. It did not originate with you. It's not your cleverness. It's not your political acumen. It is the God of heaven who gave it to you. But you are the representative of the kingdom of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not the first king of the Babylonian kingdom. His father, Nabopolassar, is the first king. But Nebuchadnezzar is by far the most powerful and prominent of them. And his kingdom lasted from 626 to 539. Roughly a hundred years. That's how long the Babylonian kingdom lasted. It is a weighty kingdom. In, in the history of the world, the Babylonian kingdoms is one of the greatest, most magnificent kingdoms that we've ever known. The city of Babylon is almost bar none, certainly for its time, the greatest city that's ever existed on the planet. Certainly at its time, and even for thousands of yeah, I'd say thousands of years after Babylon was the greatest city. It was full of gold. Nebuchadnezzar had a thing about gold. He would, co he would cover many of their gods, Marduk and Bel, statues with gold. Um, he embellished all kinds of temples with gold. It was a materialistic, affluent uh, kingdom, the, the likes of which um, Alexander the Great had never seen. And he comes from from the beauties you can see today on the Parthenon, um, on top of the Acropolis, of, of it, that was there. And that was like garbage next to Babylon. This was an incredible, incredible kingdom. Um, but 
even though it was extremely weighty, extremely wealthy, it was also extremely weak because its wealth masked its underlying weakness. And after Babylon, after the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom went downhill very fast until, and we're going to get to it, Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, his kingdom was taken over one night. It's gone. One night. That's how long it took to conquer his kingdom. Not even one day. One night. That's a pretty weak kingdom as he's partying hardy. And we'll come to that in chapter 5. You see... I don't know if you can think of it, but it's easy for us as Americans. Can you think of a country or a company? Who's this recently, the, the woman who's now been convicted, uh, came up with like a, a fake company and made millions and billions, of course, bilking people, or, or Mr. Madoff, who in the terms of billions was just a Ponzi scheme. Countries, companies, communities, even churches today that represent Babylon. The outside looked glorious, weighty, wealthy even. But there's uh, deep, deep cracks, weakness built into the system. We have it in the Bible, the church of Laodicea. The Laodicea of all those churches in what is today Turkey was the wealthiest of all of them by far. It says, you are wealthy, you're rich, you think you have nothing, but you do not know that you're poor and weak. You see, that's what the Babylonian kingdom was. There are kingdoms that appear on the outside to look extremely wealthy and strong, which are really fundamentally weak. And we'll come back to that later, because now we come to the second kingdom. This is verse 39a. And look how short it is. The reason probably why this kingdom is so short is because we're going to have a whole chapter that's going to be devoted to them. Um, chapter, chapters 8, 7, and 8 are going to be talk. We're going to talk about this kingdom. This is the Medo-Persian kingdom. Two groups of people, the Medes and the Persians, combined together to form the Medo-Persian um, empire and two, two arms, Mede and Persians. And here's what Daniel in, interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. A kingdom inferior to Nebuchadnezzar's will now become superior. Here's the verse. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Now, just that statement alone, what does that mean? You are going to be conquered by an inferior kingdom. And we know in the history of, of our, even since we've all been alive, we know a lot of inferior kingdoms. Take us. Take Afghanistan. Take Vietnam inferior kingdoms, for sure, who beat us. Well, he said, there's going to be a kingdom inferior to yours that is going to um, arise. And this is the Medes and the Persian kingdom, which, by the way, lasted about uh, 200 years, <laughs> interestingly, from 539 to 330 B.C. Now, think about this kingdom. It, it had a broad reach. Two, two arms. Do you know how big the, the reach was? The Persian kingdom at its apex comprised 44.5% of the world's population. In world history, in terms of the population of the world, this is the largest population, not landmass, population kingdom in the world is this one. Huge arms, 
huge spread, a, a kingdom that has a broad reach, two-armed, that heart, but it's inferior to, to, to the Babylonian kingdom in terms of its glory, its wealth, its materialism, even its, the strength of its government. It, it, it's weaker, big, yet inferior. You see, it's not about the wealth. That's what we learned from Babylon. And in this one, we learn it's not about the size because the biggest of the kingdoms is going to be found wanting as well. The wealthiest is found wanting. Now the biggest is going to be found wanting. But now he turns to kingdom number three. And this one, what you'll notice, the key to this one is its geographical reach. Here's what it says. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Now this one, of course, is the core and the thighs. I did a little study this week on fast twitch muscles. As you know, our, the most uh, fastest people on earth have fast twitch muscles that are more developed than most of ours. And of course, the speed is here and here. This is speed. The fastest people. And this is the empire that conquered the world so fast the world has never seen the likes of it. This is Alexander the Great, the Greek kingdom. Alexander was a young man, and he died in his early 30s. But by that time, he had gone from, from Macedonia and covered all of the Middle East and, and all of Afghanistan, and he was all the way to India. He took all of that space in an extremely short period of time. Nothing could stop his armies. He went down and took Israel. He went down and took Egypt. How did the guy did it? No one knows. But his reach geographically was huge. This is the largest kingdom. In fact, Alexander the Great required that he be called the king of all the earth. And so here was a kingdom that conquered with incredible speed, like a leopard. And yet it didn't last either. The kingdom of great material wealth didn't last, and the kingdom that had this huge reach didn't last in terms of population, and now this one that with lightning speed and intelligence conquered the world. It, it didn't last either, but now there was a fourth kingdom, and this is the one where Daniel spends the most time. Here's what it says. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now, the key to this kingdom, of course, is strength, military strength. And in terms of military strength, there's been nothing in human history like the Roman kingdom. Nothing. How do we know? Because we have the Pax Romana. Here in the history of the world, we have a period of almost 500 years where there were minor skirmishes, but no big wars, huge wars, for 500 years. Why? Because one power ruled them all with devastating power. That was, of course, the 
the Roman Empire. But this empire contained fatal flaws because it was, it was a, a mixture of iron and clay. And as you know, what the Romans did during their, their, um, their rule of the world for 500 years from 63 BC, that's when they took over Israel, all the way until the 490s, they ruled the world until the, the barbarians came down and destroyed Rome, half of Rome, because it was a divided kingdom. The east with the, with the capital in well, it was called Byzantium, and then it changed its name to Constantinople. And today it's called Istanbul. And the western capital was in Rome. So it was a kingdom with two heads, and it became unwieldy because it was so big. And, and the one in Rome fell after about 500 years, which is a pretty long run in human history. Remember? First kingdom, 100 years. The second, roughly 200 years. The third one, roughly 300 years. And now the fourth one over 400 years. But it did not fall. The greatest military society of all of them, by far, did not fall militarily, but by decay from inside. The moral decay of the society weakened its moral fiber, and it too fell. This fourth kingdom was super strong, had unchallenged strength, overreaching. Because of that, it was vulnerable. It was powerful, yet fragile. And uh, there are our four kingdoms. Now, what do you learn? (laughs) Well, the, the richest one didn't make it, and the one with the broadest reach population wise didn't make it, and the one that conquered the world most swiftly and known for its intelligence, it didn't make it. And the one that had the greatest military strength, it, it, it didn't make it at all. But we learned some lessons about kingdoms here. First, great kingdoms have similar characteristics. What are they? Effective leadership, military might, the accumula- accumulation of wealth, and means to pacify the people. We call it bread and circuses. All of them, especially the Roman one, but all of them have feet of clay because all of these kingdoms were conquered. You see, all the kingdoms come and go, and all kingdoms are vulnerable, and all eventually fall. All. The richest, the biggest, the smartest, and the most powerful kingdoms of all fall. Why? Well, because life is cyclical. You remember the book of of Judges? In the book of Judges in the Bible, you have God's people go through seven cycles of the exact same thing over and over again. You think they'd learned their lesson. They never did, nor have we. They did the same thing. The people were God's people, and when they followed God's law, they prospered. And when they prospered from God's law, they started to fall away from God. And as they fell away from God, they turned to other gods, other idols. And when they turned to other gods and other idols, they started to hurt, and their civilization started to break down. When their civilization started to break down, they became slaves. When they became slaves, they cried out to God because slavery hurts. And when they cried out to God, what did God do? He heard them in, their, in his merciful ears. He heard them. He provided a judge. The judge rose up and helped the people and brought them liberty again. And what did they do with liberty? Same thing over and over and over again. Have you heard of the Titler cycle? This one goes like this. You've probably heard it. This is how life works. You go from bondage to spiritual faith. 
and from spiritual faith to great courage, and from great courage to strength, and from strength to liberty, and from liberty to abundance, from abundance to leisure, from leisure to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency to weakness, and from weakness to bondage, over and over and over again. And as I read that, I hope you're thinking, where are we as a nation? Not in a good place. And by the way, maybe you've heard of Malcolm Gladwell, a well-known writer. One of his books is called Blink. And he traces how life works in the planet. You think it's a bell curve. You, 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 you rise as a nation gradually and you fall gradually. So that's not how anything works. This is how life really works. You rise like this and then boom, almost overnight you fall. The fall is not gradual. It's almost immediate. It's like you're going off a precipice. That's how life worked. And that's how life worked for the Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to come to it in chapter 5. We're going to see what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, how his kingdom fell, not Nebuchadnezzar, actually Belshazzar, his kingdom fell apart overnight, literally. You see, our, our, our present world, we don't, believe, we don't see this, we don't believe it, but it's a house of cards. And that's one of the things that God is trying to show Nebuchadnezzar through the first portion of this. But there's another kingdom coming. And this is where we turn in verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not with human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream and its interpretation are trustworthy. Wow. Here we have the kingdom of God being introduced. Who's put together the kingdom of God? It's not made by human hands. It's fashioned by God. And how will it happen? It will have a decisive entrance into this world. And when it does so, it will create something completely new. Its power will be unstoppable. Its scope will be universal. Its time frame will be eternal. And it will all begin with a stone. Who's called a stone, by the way, in the Bible? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the capstone. Who's the stone? Jesus. He's called the stone. You see, Christ's kingdom will not absorb, it will not restructure, it will not adapt to previous kingdoms. He will totally annihilate them one day and set up his own monarchy, which will be absolutely perfect politically, morally, economically, and religiously. It will be like Eden again. Remember John the Baptist when he came on this earth years ago? His first recorded words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Among Jesus' first recorded public words are these. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, Nebuchadnezzar hears Daniel's explanation, and he's stunned. Here's how the chapter ends. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, fell prostrate before a 16-year-old Jewish captive and paid him honor 
and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. It reminds me of what I've heard um, of, of the king, or not the king, the president of the United States salutes a Medal of Honor winner. Medal of Honor winners, as you know, are rare individuals in our history whose heroism is off the charts. And in the presence of a Medal of Honor winner, the commander-in-chief says, I salute you. You are the true hero. Here's the king, the greatest king in the world, falling down before a Jewish teenager. Amazing. And he's stunned. He says, your God, your God is the true and living God. Okay. So what? <laughs> what? What difference does that make to us? Here we are in Riverton, Wyoming, 2022. Big deal. Well, let me get a few lessons. Number one, this is one we might, be chose, we might choose to forget. God is actively after Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> We're going to see that God's going to get this dude, but he is one hard-headed, arrogant idiot. But God's after him. God's the hound of heaven. And the hound of heaven is going to get this guy. Secondly, when you look at a scripture like this and you see, knowing human history, how perfectly this has been fulfilled, you think, whoa, hopefully should increase your confidence in the word of God. But something we also should remember is that all kingdoms fall. All governments fall. And as a result... We should be careful about, it seems to me as Christians, we, we, not that we should not be involved in our kingdom, in our government, because it's important and it affects our lives, but it is not the most important thing. God's kingdom is. And maybe God is telling us, don't put all your eggs in the wrong basket, because that basket's going to crumble. It isn't going to work. It's never worked. It never will work. Not that we should ignore that, but be sure you put your best, your most important eggs in the right basket. Which one? The kingdom that will endure forever, that will spread over the whole earth, ruled by Jesus. That's the kingdom that matters more than any other by far. But think about this diabolical combination, value. Did you see how the value began with gold and ended with iron and clay? Very valuable, very, very worthless. What is kingdoms over time will lose value? What kind of value? It seems to me the one I pin to this is the value of human life. Do you know the numbers? Let me tell them to you. World War I, 15 to 22 million people killed. I don't think there's anyone here today who was alive then, but I know someone, one of my dear friends was alive. She's 107. 15 to 22 million people. World War II, between 70 and 85 million people. I was not alive, but many of you were. Up to 85 million people were killed. Communism, 
the most accurate number I've gotten is 94 million people killed and counting. 94 million. That's going on right now. This one stunned, stunned me. I saw it yesterday. The World Health Organization estimates that between 40 and 50 million abortions take place every year worldwide. 125,000 per day. What, what's happened to the value of human life? Look at those numbers. There's never been a time in human history where the value of human life has gone so low. Remember, this is a diabolical combination. The value of human life goes low. Military and political power goes up. Because as you notice, the kingdoms, as they become, the value goes down, the power goes up. Iron is much stronger than gold. Here's the combination. The value of human life goes down. The power of, of and influence of government goes up. And did you see with the last one, the most strong one of all, the Roman, the connection of, of, of iron and clay, polarization that's stunning. They can't work. Human life value down, political and military power up, and extreme polarization that can never exist for long. Sound familiar? Maybe a little bit. I don't know. Almost sounds like it's our world today. But here's the hope. God wins. God wins. No, I shouldn't even say that. That's not true. God doesn't win. God won. He won 2,000 years ago. It's over. This is just the, this is the after. The war was fought at Calvary 2,000 years ago. It's over. The war has been won. We're in the cleanup operations. But he wins. And we know that for sure. God wins because history is simply his story. And he gave us a glimpse into it 2,500 years ago. And so how do we live? Faith. We trust God in his word because it's a rock-solid foundation. Hope. Because we know who wins. And in the meantime, love. Because that's what we're the recipients of. And that's how we're called to live. Faith, hope, and love. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. It's, it's amazing. It's, it causes us to shake our heads, just as Nebuchadnezzar did thousands of years ago. It's so pertinent, so powerful, so true, so helpful, so practical. Help us to be people, Heavenly Father, who invest deeply in your kingdom, because it lasts forever. Help us, Heavenly Father, to live with hope in a world that seems shaky, because we're your ambassadors and we've been given a wonderful task. And help us to be people whose love for you and for one another and for the people in our world just oozes out of us because that's what you've called us to be, your representatives in this world. To that end, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.